Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray again. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have two scripture lessons this morning. The first we used as our call to worship, Psalm 8. And the second is this passage from the first chapter of Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every living, creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of the Lord. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission is to explore new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. So says Captain Kirk at the beginning of each episode of the original Star Trek series. And in the series, Kirk and his crew explore the far reaches of space, visiting life-sustaining planets and dealing with many life forms, some friendly, some hostile. Captain Kirk even manages to find a few love interests in the far beyond. The series only lasted three seasons, but its popularity grew in syndication and still more through movies and spinoffs. The popularity of the Star Trek franchise is tied in part, I think, to our curiosity about what, about who is out there. Why should human potential and imagination be bound by these earthly coils? What human possibilities are available out there in the unseen and unknown? There are many who dream of finding out. The hope of space exploration is so widespread that thousands of people are making down payments to be placed on waiting lists for seats on future space flights. The current full fare for Richard Branson's spacecraft is $450,000, which means William Shatner got a bargain. 
Shatner, who portrayed Kirk on the original Star Trek series and in the first of its movies, was given the extraordinary opportunity to do exactly what he had only pretended to do on sets and in front of green screens. About this time last year, at Jeff Bezos' invitation, the 90-year-old actor became the oldest living person ever to travel into space by riding on the Blue Origin space shuttle. Vanity Magazine published an excerpt from Shatner's book, Boldly Go, where he reflects on that experience. After describing what it was to endure the three G's at liftoff, Shatner talked about what happened just after the crew moved past the grip of gravity. Others on the spacecraft did what most would do, I'm certain what Ben would do, and that is to spin somersaults in the air and play with weightlessness. But Shatner kept his seat and stared out the windows. He looked down and saw the hole the spaceship had punched in the thin blue-tinged layer of oxygen around the Earth. And he then turned to see what he most wanted to see, the great beyond. He said he always loved the mystery of the universe, fascinated to learn of stars exploding, light taking years to reach our eyes, entire galaxies existing in areas once thought to be devoid of matter entirely. But now in space, looking out into the final frontier, all he saw was death. A cold, dark, black emptiness. And then he looked back toward Earth. He could see the curvature of Earth, the beige of the desert, the white of the clouds, the blue of the sky, and he saw life. Nurturing, sustaining life. Mother Earth. And he was leaving her. Shatner was shocked. The experience was the opposite of what he thought it would be. He thought that being up there would be the next beautiful step to understand the harmony of the universe. But the only possibility of life that he saw up there was the place that he was leaving. For years, Shatner had been reading of Earth's spoiling, of the extinction of animal species, flora and fauna that took billions of years to evolve and now exist no longer because of human interference. And grief overwhelmed him. Shatner experienced what other astronauts have experienced and which has come to be known as the overview effect. In space, as far as one can see, the only realistic potential for life to be counted on is on this tiny blue orb sitting so vulnerable and small in the vast expanse of the universe. Shatner said the trip changed the way that he looks at Earth. For him now, the true grandeur of existence is not to be found beyond the stars, but on this planet in which we already live, because Earth provides the only place we know of where life is possible. He said that if we can only gain this deep appreciation for what is unique about the planet, it might give us a chance to rededicate ourselves to our planet, to each other, and to live and love all those around us. Now, Shatner's is not the only perspective on the universe. 
Some might argue that Shatner was short-sighted and trusting only the black void of what he could see and not being amazed and excited about what could be out there in the seemingly infinite possibilities of space. But still, his perspective on what can be seen and known today raises an important question. For planetary life in the future, on what should we hang our hope? Should our hope for life for future generations be on what might lie beyond or on what we already have? Sure, space offers endless possibilities, but Earth offers today's air to breathe, water to drink, food to eat. For me, Shatner's vision from above reverses the awe and wonder of the poet of Psalm 8 who looks up. The poet of Psalm 8 stared into the night sky above, filled with old wonder about what might lie beyond. Shatner looked at the earth below and was filled with new wonder over the planet on which we already live. Shatner calls himself spiritual, but says that he is not a religious man. So I would guess that his wonder is largely over how incredibly lucky we are to be here. I mean, look at all the accidents that have to be in place for there to be life on this planet. That the earth is the right distance from the sun to warm us and not fry us. That the earth has an orbit that maintains itself in this inhabitable zone rather than moving in and out of it. That the ozone can shield ourselves from lethal radiation while containing oxygen. That the earth has a moon that stabilizes our orbit and causes tides. And it's said that it's in tidal pools where life first began. I could go on and on, but you get it. With so many improbables in place. Every person alive should be seen as winning some kind of cosmic lottery. Because how amazing it is that we are here right now, breathing, living, hearts beating. How amazing it is that we even exist in the vast expanse of space, in the vast expanse of time, that we're actually doing it and living it right now. How amazing it is that we not only exist, but that we know we exist. I accept the science, and it does inspire wonder in me. But believing in God as I do, I don't think of earth as an accident. I see it as a gift. And with you being in worship with me, I think that most of you would agree. Now, no one in this worship service has been given a seat on a billionaire spaceship, but most everybody in this service believes that we've been given the gift of this improbable earth. But it doesn't really matter, does it, whether or not this inhabitable planet is an accident or a gift. Should we not also consider its care a responsibility? The Bible would say so and does so at the very beginning. In the first chapter of Genesis, Earth's creation is described. For however the description falls short of scientific findings, as if the Bible were a science book, for however the description fails according to scientific discovery, it more than compensates with its moral vision of what it means to be human. 
On days one through three, we're given these balanced realms that make life possible, heaven and earth, day and night, deep sea and dry land. On days four through six, these realms are inhabited. The sun and moon are placed in the heavens to rule the day and night. Birds and fish inhabit the sky and seas, and creatures are placed to roam on dry land. And among the creatures placed on land are humans. Male and female, he created them. And there's something different about these creatures, for there's placed within them the image of God. This means, at least in part, that humans are to be God's representatives, God's stewards on earth. They're put in the garden to tend and to keep it. They're not put there to be owners of the land who are accountable only to themselves. They're put there to be stewards of the land, accountable to God. Progress certainly is encouraged. Be fruitful and multiply, but progress should not mean exploitation, and expansion should not lead to extinction. And the reason is simple. As God's representatives, we are here to love what God loves. It doesn't take much research in the Bible to discover that the later traditions of faith take seriously this command for God's people to care for the earth. Read through the Mosaic Covenant and the Prophets, and you'll find many commands to be good stewards of the earth. Flora and fauna are to be cared for. Land is to be given Sabbath rest by leaving fields fallow and rotating crops so that the land is not exhausted of its resources. Animal cruelty is forbidden, with it getting to the place where the prophet Isaiah calls for grain offerings to replace animal ones. Yes, it's all through scripture and tradition. The faith of Israel has always had this strong relationship to the land with great respect given for not only what the land can offer us, but what it needs from us. I want to go back to William Shatner, whose acting career was built on portraying the captain of a ship that explores the beyond, but who is now at the end of his life worried about what will become of the earth on which we already live. He talks about all that he has read and heard about what is being done to the planet, and we've heard, we've read it too, we've heard about pollution and extinctions and our contributions to global warming and the human capacity to destroy most, if not all, of life on earth. Of course, there are pollution and extinctions that are unavoidable, but you know what I mean. You know that I'm talking about what could be managed and avoided if only we would. I could take a doomsday turn in my sermon here, but you can do that for yourselves if you want. If reading of what could happen to our planet if we don't take care of it, could inspire responsible action. Well, there's plenty out there you can read to get scared straight. But I don't want to do that. I want to go back to a better motivation to care for the earth. I want to go back to the wonder of life. The wonder of life being possible on this spinning planet, which is so small in the vast expanse of the universe, but which offers everything that we need to live and breathe and love and have our being. I dwell on that 
I dwell on that wonder because I think that those who are most passionate about taking care of the earth are those who get lost in wonder. I include those who see this earth as a lucky accident. Those scientists who have studied what had to happen to make life possible and what might happen to bring life to an end can be very passionate about taking care of what we are so lucky to have because we won that cosmic lottery. But I speak even more to those who are passionate because they see earth and life as gifts. I think of fishermen who see poetry in a good cast, hear music in the water, and want to keep our rivers and streams clean. I think of gardeners who are partners with the soil in seeing what can grow and want to see land treated with respect. I think of hikers and bikers and horseback riders who find a forest to be something of a cathedral and fresh air as nature's wine and want to make sure that forests and woods not be spoiled. I think of poets who find nature to be a muse and thus want to protect its voice. And I think of people of faith who sense the creator's hand behind creation and who understand that taking care of the earth is to take care of what is necessary for us to have and live our best human selves where we can love God and love what God loves. Whether to care for what we are lucky to have or to care for what we see as a gift, may the number grow of those who want to be stewards of the earth so future generations can be so lucky or so gifted as we are today. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.